Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018 and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 133, It Has Begun. As the German guns opened up at 3.15 a.m. on June 22, 1941, Operation Barbarossa was supposed to be the latest in an impressive string of victories. Yet, as the Germans were about to find out, this battle on these fields was to be vastly different than what had come before. The majority of the battles preceding this one had come in relatively smaller areas with well-developed roads, rails, and communications, all stringing together cities, towns, and farms where supplies could be obtained, rest could be had with some comfort. It also helped that many of the opponents thus far of Nazi Germany, besides the stubborn British, had leaders who lacked a true desire to embrace the struggle. But here again, the Nazi warlord in Berlin would find, in the East, it would be a different heart that beat in the chests of the Bolsheviks and Russian people. What's more, these countries, after Poland, had not altered their military to deflect the tactics of the Blitzkrieg. Russia hadn't either. But during the few years previous to the Nazi onslaught of the USSR, Stalin had taken steps to push his border with Germany far to the west, 
The land now between this new border and the major cities like Leningrad, Stalingrad, and Moscow was roughly the same size as all the territory already conquered in the West. Truly, if Germany was to invade and, as planned, knock out their latest foe, their forces would have to engage and destroy the largest army in the world, penetrate some 1,750 kilometers, or 1,050 miles, along a front of 1,800 kilometers, or some 1,080 miles. And all this had to be done, or a large part of it, before winter. To achieve this mighty undertaking, the opening phase was kept simple in its strategy. The existing Soviet forces, in their hundreds of thousands, stationed in western Russia, were to be annihilated before Stalin could collect, organize, and counterattack with his massive reserves. This planning of Hitler's was taken straight from Napoleon's war book. If you destroyed the enemy's forces, you could then do whatever you wanted. Capturing a town was nice, but their forces, their ability to strike back, would still exist. No, it was the men on the other side of the line that had to go. But even military maxims have to keep up with the times. The Germans would find out before 1941 was over that Stalin's complete control over his people's lives allowed him to efficiently bring men forward, put weapons in their hands, and march them out at an impressive rate. This would cause the Germans to alter their thinking that indeed Moscow had to be captured in order to interrupt this process. Still, victory could be had rather quickly. And the Germans' confidence was easy to countenance. They had simply never lost before. North Africa doesn't count. The percentage of men who were Italian was too high. Thus, it would seem that Stalin was living his last days. Allocated for Barbarossa were 151 German divisions, of which 19 were panzer and 15 were motorized infantry. Some 3,350 tanks, 7,200 pieces of various artillery, and despite losses during the Battle of Britain, some 2,770 aircraft would be utilized. Added to this were 14 more divisions from Finland, still smarting over the land and men lost during the Battle of Finland, as well as other forces from Romania. All these forces would be grouped into four armies and controlled by the German High Command, or OKH, Oberkommando des Heeres. There was to be the Army of Norway to the far north, and then the three main armies. Army groups north, center, and south. And each group would have its own German air fleet. As Army Group Center was tasked with breaking the back of Russian resistance. Its leader, Field Marshal Fedor von Bock, would have two of the four available panzer groups, the second and third. Each panzer group would travel on either side of the Belostok salient, the bulge of Russian territory piercing into German-controlled Poland around the town of Bielystok, and then the German armor would regroup at Minsk, further east. 
not only to prepare to take that city, but to so cut off whatever Russian forces they raced past. This meant that the majority of German offensive power would be to the north of the seemingly impenetrable Pripyat marshes, which is how Hitler saw the war unfolding. And though the Germans would find out, even before the end of 1941, of some of their mistakes, they planned on using Western Russia's lack of roads and overall development to their advantage. According to their plans, the balance of Russian forces to the west of Moscow would be passed, surrounded, cut off, and then destroyed before winter came, giving them freedom to finish off Russia and the war in the following year. But here was their first mistake. Little did they know of the already organized forces along the Dnieper River. According to Barbarossa's plans, the Wehrmacht would, after encircling and destroying the forces before them, then go their separate ways. Army Group North to Leningrad, Group Center to Moscow, Group South to Kiev. But what they would find is that, despite their massive victories and hundreds of thousands of Soviet POWs, Moscow was ready with even more men to launch at the enemy, as they, the Germans, were dispersing their forces in order to capture the various industrial centers simultaneously. Yet Stalin easily matched Berlin, mistake for mistake, in the early phases of the war. Not only did he move up his front-line defenses after taking his part of Poland and the Baltic states, which exposed his men to German air and armor attacks, but he also, going against the advice of the Red Army General Staff, decided for himself that Germany's main attack would come south of the Pripyat marshes, that Kiev, the breadbasket of Russia, would be too much for Hitler to ignore. This was flying in the face of what information the Red Army General Staff had been able to gather through military intelligence and their spies, which stated that the main attack would come north of the swampland and then proceed to Moscow. But Stalin believed he could see into the mind of Hitler. So, General G.J. Zhukov, the new chief of the General Staff, the hero of the Battle of Nomahom against Japan, wisely did what he was ordered. Defensive Plan 41 was altered to meet with Stalin's conception of how any war with Germany would play out. Many Soviet troops would soon get their orders to head south. But Russia's lack of roads and rail in European Russia rescued the Soviet premier from his own mistake. The complete transfer of forces to the south could not be carried out by June of 1941. So as the Germans launched their attack, Russia's three belts of defense were still, more or less, as they were in 1940. Their largest concentration of forces were still to the north of the marshes. And this dovetailed with Germany's largest mistake in their planning attack. The second belt of defense along the entire front, some 57 divisions, stationed around the Dnieper and Vina rivers, had yet to be detected by German intelligence. Berlin knew of and planned for the 57 divisions of the first belt of defense, but that was all in regards to any detailed attack plan. 
And this does not even take into consideration the third belt further to the east of an additional 62 divisions. Yet in regards to the first phase of the coming battle, this mistake of Germany's would be offset somewhat by so many Russian forces who were literally on the move south when Germany's main offensive crossed the border to the north. And yet, and yet, Stalin's idea of trading space for time would pay huge dividends down the road. The basic idea of the Blitzkrieg was for armored spearheads to penetrate a small section of an enemy's defensive line, supported by close air support. Then some armory units would turn back and attack other parts of the line from the rear, while other units drove even deeper and disrupted communications and sought out the local command headquarters. The first group mentioned would round up parts of the enemy defensive line, thus cutting off their escape. Then German infantry units would rush up, preferably in armored trucks, to engage and destroy those trapped. This would free up the panzers, who would then move further into enemy territory and start the process all over again, once they found where the enemy had reformed their lines. This worked well enough in the West, where space was not the issue it would be in the East. But even then, in the West, the infantry could never quite move fast enough, and thus some enemy forces would escape the traps. Nazi Germany never had enough transports for the West, and wouldn't even come close in the East. Thus, in the coming war, Russian troops would find themselves able to flee into the ever-growing gaps between German armor and infantry, as the panzers, caught up in the bloodlust of victory, continued to drive east. The other side of this was, as the majority of German infantry came forward, either on foot or by horse, their comrades in the panzer ranks would have to wait on them, giving the enemy time to regroup, which negated one of the major advantages of the Blitzkrieg. And there were other chinks in the Nazi armor, though yet not exposed during their short, quick, offensive punches in the West. When Barbarossa was launched, there were 2,770 aircraft of the Luftwaffe, working with the ground forces, and this number was 65% of Goering's first-line strength. To be sure, his BF-109 Messerschmitt fighters were the best Germany had to oppose enemy aircraft, but besides that, their other planes were quickly belonging to the past. The Ju-52 transport that worked so well for Germany was slow compared to what Britain had to put up against it. But in Russia, it was not only slow, but simply did not have the range or carrying capacity needed for the distance between Poland and Moscow. The aging Ju-87 Stuka dive bombers worked well enough, as long as the skies were completely owned by the Germans. Otherwise, they could be picked off relatively easily. But it was the workhorse Ju-88 bombers that would be needed to pound enemy positions, either into surrendering or at least to keep their heads down while surrounded by German armor or infantry that would prove to be Hitler's Achilles heel. Considering the number of Russian troops and vast distances between them, 
The Ju-88 could never carry enough bombs or fly far enough into enemy territory to keep the enemy truly harassed. Even if one wanted to call the Battle of Britain a draw, Germany had not been able to gain control of the air to invade, and Britain certainly suffered mightily in deaths and destruction during their defensive stand. The result for the Luftwaffe was the same. Going up against Russia in the summer of 1941, there were now some 200 fewer bombers to take on Russian forces. Had German war production been able to make good these losses, and sticking our toe into alternative history for a moment, had been able to give Hitler some 1,000 more armored transport carriers, the victories enjoyed by Germany during that first summer and fall of 1941 could have been far greater. Maybe even dealing Stalin enough body blows from which he would not be able to recover. But we will never know. Truly, a quick victory was needed. Hitler knew that well enough, but he also expected and planned for it. At least in some of his speeches to his generals, the warlord was already looking forward past a German victory against Russia. Having achieved what Generals Ludendorff and von Hindenburg could not during the First War, and then finishing up successfully what Napoleon could not in Russia, the man in Berlin spoke of finishing off the Allies in North Africa, as well as operations in Asia Minor. Perhaps the man who had created the largest German empire in the world now saw himself finishing what Alexander the Great had not. And one can hardly blame the man. Had he lost yet? And what of the Russian army? They had had a difficult time in Poland even after the bulk of the Polish forces had been smashed by the Germans. Also, the Finns had been able to stymie the Russians for much longer than most thought was acceptable. Only by bringing in overwhelming forces did Russia push back the Finns. Still, they paid a heavy price for their successes. Of course, these embarrassing events were laid at the feet of Stalin's purges, where loyalty counted for more than ability. And now each Russian unit had a political officer who made sure the party line was towed, even if it went against military pragmatism. Yes, communism was evil, but it was also weak in Hitler's eyes. Ironically, it would be Germany's amazing successes that year of 1941 that caused Stalin to place political loyalty second to military ability. And as they, the Russians, were still in the war in the spring of 1942, despite so much loss, this change would give the defenders what they did not have, could not have, the previous year. June 22, 1941 was the shortest night of the year. Hitler was counting on this. So his generals would have as much daylight on that first day to achieve as much destruction as they could, which would only set up their forces for even more victories in the following days. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, and like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. 
There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. At exactly 3.15 that morning of June 22nd, these were Germans after all, thousands of German guns opened up on Soviet defensive positions along their mutual border, signaling the beginning of Operation Barbarossa. As it was still more or less dark, only 30 German bombers took off, flying in groups of three and targeted nearby Russian cities and, more importantly, airfields. Fifteen minutes later, the advance forces of Nazi Germany's just over three million soldiers left their jump-off points to invade Soviet-held territory. They initially met with very little resistance. As more sunlight filled the air, the Luftwaffe responded by launching their main forces, some additional 500 bombers, 480 fighters, and 270 dive bombers. The bombers' targets were the closest 66 enemy airfields, again along the entire front, just over 1,000 miles long. During the first 24 hours, just over 1,200 Soviet aircraft were obliterated, most while still on the ground. And keeping up this pace, within a few more days, the Germans would completely control the air hundreds of miles into Russian airspace. Many of the Russian border positions were overrun by German infantry before they could organize. Others retreated in complete chaos, but some, far too few, managed to assemble and offer up some resistance. These brave men bought their comrades behind them a few hours. Not that much would be gained by that time. As if the German aerial assault and the complete tactical surprise were not enough to destroy Soviet command and control from the front lines to Moscow. Earlier that morning, Brandenburger Special Operations troops, dressed as Russian soldiers, parachuted behind the front lines and proceeded to cut telephone lines, take important bridges, and anything else they happened upon to destroy communications. Army Group Center that morning of June 22nd, Germany's main attack, led by Field Marshal Bach, came along just north of the Pripyat Marshes. Their immediate goal was to advance along either side of Bielestock, taking advantage of the Russian bulge there and make for Minsk. The Russian forces between the border near Bielestock and Minsk would then be cut off. Just as in Poland and France, Hitler planned on winning this war even before reaching Moscow or any other major cities that far into enemy territory. If Germany could destroy or capture all or most of the Russian forces in European Russia, 
then victory was a foregone conclusion. Then the Panzer forces would continue on to Smolensk, while ever capturing or destroying all Soviet forces west of the Dnieper River. Protecting them on their drive would be Field Marshal Albert Kesselring's 2nd Air Fleet, with some 1,500 aircraft. Standing in the way of Army Group Center was Army General D.G. Pavlov of the Soviet Western Special Military District. During the first few hours of the German attack, Pavlov lost almost all contact with anyone ranking above or below him. Yet he did manage to get an order to his deputy, Lieutenant General Bolton, to get to 10th Army Headquarters just outside of Bielestock, which meant literally flying through overwhelming German air power. Yet somehow the Lieutenant General made it. Bolden was to organize a counterattack, being that close to the front, to give further field units time to deploy. The good news was that the 10th Army commander, Golubev, had already ordered an attack. It might have been suicide, which it was, but it was better than a guaranteed slow, painful death at the hands of the NKVD, the secret police, for disobeying orders. The counterattack if such it could be called, guaranteed the death or capture of the vast majority of the men sent out. Golubev's men attacked the force coming north of the town, but within days were completely wiped out. The Germans were not slowed down by this, as the Russian forces already in that area had started retreating from the first moment of contact with the Germans. So no linking up of forces was possible. Moscow had no real idea in any detail of what was going on, as the Germans had planned it. Still, the fronts along the border were ordered by Stalin and the Commissar of Defense that very night of June 22nd, under Directive Number 3, to commence a general counterattack. The orders, as best they could, were sent down the line. But this only sped up the destruction of various Soviet armies. It would take a few more days for Moscow to learn of anything along the quickly shrinking front, but they were able to piece together enough information to realize the first line of defense along the entire front had ceased to exist. At this point, Moscow was calling any phone line that worked to get an idea of what was going on. Just northeast of Bielstock, by some 150 miles, General Hoth's 3rd Panzer Group reached Vilnius by the afternoon of June 23rd. Still, Pavlov again tried to organize another counterattack, using Bolden, who was somehow still alive. Bolden sent forces north of Bielystok on June 24th, which allowed more Soviet troops, or rather individuals there, to escape the forming encirclement but it meant little. By now, there were four major areas of trapped Soviet troops, around Bielystok, two more just to the southeast of the town, and another, the largest one, in between Bielystok and Minsk, though closer to the latter. This second attempted counterattack was no more successful than the first, not that it would have mattered anyhow. Coming up south of the town from Brest, was Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group, 
bypassing the trapped Soviet troops southeast of the town and on their way to Minsk. Other panzers of Guderian would continue on to Smolensk, trapping even more retreating Soviet troops. Orders be damned, Pavlov now knew it was impossible to stop the Germans this far west. So he ordered all units to pull back further east and regroup. But those units still fighting were doing just that, fighting to survive, and so could not disengage. Besides, German bombers had already destroyed the bridges over the Shara River, had the Russians been able to retreat east. On June 26th, Pavlov reported to Moscow that, quote, up to 1,000 tanks are enveloping Minsk from the northwest. There is no way to oppose them, unquote. By June 30th, all Soviet forces west of Minsk were now behind the forces of Hoth and Guderian, whose tanks were now just west of Minsk and in strength. The Soviet 10th, 3rd, 4th, and 13th armies were now trapped. The border between Germany and Russia no longer existed, or rather had been pushed back some 200 miles, or 300 kilometers, within days of the attack. Other German forces were, by then, some 160 additional miles, or 200 kilometers, further east. Within three weeks, Pavlov was tried and executed. Around the time of Pavlov's execution, Hitler would order his panzers to stop. The infantry needed time to catch up, as too many Soviet troops were slipping out of the nets created by the rushing panzers. By the middle of July, Army Group Center had conquered all of Belarusia and had inflicted just over 400,000 casualties, of which some 300,040 had been killed or captured. The Soviet Western Front had lost, in that time, some 4,700 tanks, over 9,000 guns, and some 1,700 Soviet aircraft. And yet, there was, already at this time, some grumbling by the German high command. Through the shouts of praise being thrown around, General Franz Halder, the OKH chief, had gone through enough reports to see that many Soviet army groups had been mislabeled after being captured. So no one could be really sure of who had been defeated, who was being faced now, and how many more were still out there. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. 
Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Uh, so before I thank all my new members and people who have donated and bought mugs, I do want to give you two audible recommendations on this subject. Um, I wish I could tell you there are at least 10 books out there on Audible, on Operation Barbarossa, or various parts of it, but unfortunately there are not. Um, I think there are a couple more out there, actually, if you um, speak French. Um, but there's only two that are worth uh, mentioning to you. One is called Death Ride. Hitler versus Stalin, The Eastern Front, 1941 to 1945, by John Moser. Now, this here is a little controversial. It basically, he states that um, he couldn't trust pretty much anything the Russians said. You couldn't trust any of their records. And the war was Hitler's to lose. And it was just his fault that he lost it. And it was the Allies coming to North Africa that really made the difference. So if you're looking for a, a different perspective on Operation Barbarossa, this would actually be a good a good fit for you. Um, the other one is the one that I like. I'm listening to it now. It's called Where the Iron Crosses Go, the Crimea, 1941 to 44, by Robert Forzik. That's F-O-R-C-Z-Y-K. Now, this is really good because it focuses down on this area between 41 and 44. And he talks about at the beginning, a Soviet army is entirely wiped out. And then a German army is surrounded and wiped out. And there's just ugly fighting going on. Both sides are butchering the civilians. Um, the Germans are killing the Jews. The Russians are slaughtering the Tartars. And that has nothing to do with the war each, with each other. But what really makes it interesting, because it's you know near a body of water, there's actually amphibious landing and they're able to outflank each other using the water. And so it's a really good book and to just to give you, just to zoom in and give you an idea of what's going on there. Um, so I definitely would think you should check that one out. But again, for the other one, if you just want something, a slight different take on the, on the war, you should try the other one, um, Death Ride. And again, you can just go to the website, www.worldwar2podcast.net. I think if you click on the shop button, then you'll see the link for the Audible. That way you can sign up. You get your free membership for a certain number of days. You get the free audiobook. And even if you cancel the membership, you get to keep the free audiobook. Um, but you should definitely check out the program. I've been a member of Audible for over four years now, and I've got a lot of good books, and you definitely save a ton of money by being a member. So definitely check out audible.com. Okay, and now I'd like to say hello and welcome aboard to the latest members of the History of World War II podcast. Um, Robert B. from Burlington, Vermont. Ontario H. from Finland. David S. from Fort Collins, Colorado. Reagan, Regan F., I'm not sure where you're from, so sorry about that. Uh, Robert O. from Mesa, Arizona. Rachel W., again, I'm not sure where you're from, Rachel. Very sorry. Nicholas W. from Ontario, Canada, uh, Alistair R. from Devon in the UK, Stephen T. from Montgomery, Alabama, Kevin O. from London, London, UK, obviously right there in the middle, uh, Troy T. from Rawlings, Wyoming, Joe P., and I'm not sure where you're from, Joe, sorry about that, Antonio H. from Southgate, California, Kevin P. from Indianapolis, Indiana, Morgan M. from Halifax, Nova Scotia in Canada, and Travis B., and I know I'm going to butcher this, Travis, so I'm just going to say it phonetically, St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. So sorry about that, Travis, for butchering your hometown. Uh, I'd like to thank the following people for making donations uh, for books and whatnot. Eldon G. from Santa Ana, California. Mark P. Sorry, Mark, I'm not sure where you're from. Robbie M. from Denver, Colorado. And thank you to Clifford S. for buying a Churchill mug. 
So thank you for everybody for that and supporting the show. So I've got a little surprise for you. Obviously, we're going to keep going with uh, Barbarossa. We'll go with that for a while, kind of pick up in North Africa as things start moving there again. But I also have a surprise mini series kind of buried in there for you. So I'll get that first episode out as soon as I can. And I think that will give this whole Operation Barbarossa a much better way to be understood. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Take care, everyone. Saving money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at